Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. Today, we will be discussing the upcoming Iraqi parliamentary elections on the 10th of October. With me today to discuss these elections and possible outcomes is Valeria Scuto, who is our analyst for the Middle East and North Africa, and Anastasia Chisholm, our associate analyst for the Middle East and North Africa. The background to these elections has been fraught with violence and has taken place in the aftermath of an extremely uh, deadly protest in 2019 when opposition to Shia parliamentarians led to paramilitaries killing hundreds of protesters and demands for early elections. The Prime Minister Kadimi accepted those demands and brought forward the elections by six months and also allowed for a change to electoral rules in theory, making it easier for independent candidates to stand. But there are many concerns that essentially nothing will change and that the rival factions of Shia politicians, those in favour of Iranian influence in Iraq and those against will more or less continue to be at loggerheads and violence will continue. Against this backdrop, a somewhat depressing backdrop, there are clearly implications for general security, corporate activity, the wider economy, and much, much more. Perhaps I could start, Valeria, by asking you to give a bit more of a detailed context to the current sociopolitical and economic environment in which these elections are taking place. Absolutely, Alex, thank you. As you were mentioning already, Prime Minister Mustafa Al-Kadimi is hoping to hold elections uh, on October 10 to meet the Tishreen protesters' demand that stemmed from the, the protest movement of October 2019. At the same time, he is attempting to free balance Iranian and US interests that have led to greater animosity from Shia militias which Kadimi is struggling to curb. Their influence has definitely grown in the country. At the same time, there is a still significant anti-government sentiment with grievances remaining high. Iraq remains a conflict-ridden country with poverty affecting the livelihoods of a large portion of the population, coupled by additional resource shortages, uh, including power and, and water. In particular, youth unemployment and climate-related fragilities have become prominent issues, and though the government has acknowledged them as priorities, very little has been done to address them. Another factor shaping the current social-political environment is the, the level of political activity in the elite civil society. As you were mentioning, the new electoral law does change a little bit, the parameters of these, these elections, but we're now seeing a very high number of political candidates that are not tightly affiliated with any of the political parties standing, and they have virtually very diverse political projects, which in a way is the result of a very fragmented political spectrum uh, in Iraq. And on the economic side, Iraq is reeling from the double shock of the coronavirus pandemic and the associated collapse in, in oil prices, a situation which is not separated from politics, uh, the fa- government's failure to diversify beyond its overwhelming dependence on oil revenues, 
and the mismanagement of public projects and infrastructure has definitely led to this situation. And the bloated and inefficient public sector is the result of the the, the state of Iraq's economy. However, salary payments delays all point uh, towards a protracted economic crisis, which will also be a factor for uh, domestic unrest. And uh, the need for structural reforms will be a central element that voters will look out for in, in these elections. Thanks very much, Valeria. What you seem to be pointing to there is that there have been some changes in the political landscape as we, since the 2019 process and this election and the range of candidates. Would you be able to give us a summary of the key candidates, actors, electors, and those competing, uh, you know, is it predominantly the Shia pro and anti-Iran parties? What about the Sunnis? Could, could you give us some context around that? Surely the, the, the Shia groups are dominating the, the electoral landscape. With this round of election, we're going to see over 3,000 candidates competing for 329 seats in, in parliament. But what we do expect is a tight race between the pro-Iran parties and their militias, with, with the largest being the, the Fatah alliance, and the political bloc of Shia nationalists led by Muqtad al-Sadr, whose movement, the Sadr's movement, was the biggest winner in the 2018 elections. Muqtad al-Sadr had initially said that he wanted to boycott the elections to then change his standing. They are expected to remain the largest uh, faction in parliament, but at the same time, Iran-aligned groups have seen, if we can call them some new entries, namely the most interesting being the Hukok movement, which is the political party of one of Iran's most powerful proxies in Iraq, which is Khatib Hezbollah. And uh, it definitely signals an attempt by Iran to strengthen its allies inside uh, the Iraqi parliament. We will also see other Shia alliances, but on a slightly smaller scale, their influence will be minor compared to the the two blocks mentioned. Sunni parties will be participating, but since 2003, they have shown very little unity or will to effectively unite under a sort of common political program. And they will primarily mostly focus on appealing to specific clans uh, and tribe loyalties. Next, we do have the Kurdish parties who always represent important power brokers and will likely hold a kingmaker position with their pick of the presidency. But they also have suffered internal and party divisions over the past year with the PKK militant groups supporting the PUK, which is the Patriotic Union for Kurdistan, but not the KDP, which is the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the latter which enjoys strong economic ties with Turkey. Earlier this week, a candidate of the PUK had suspended his campaign and called on his supporters to boycott the elections, further demonstrating the mounting frustration, not only from the public, but also from within some political circles with regard to the election themselves. Activists will feature as candidates, though the Tashreen movement, so the the movement stemming from the October protests in 2019, have largely said they want to boycott these elections. Some political groupings like Imtidad Movement is one of the few activist-led parties that is fielding candidates. So we don't expect Tashreen parties and their allies to make significant inroads, but their ability to transform a protest movement into a viable 
political flat platform is really only at the beginning. So we do consider that they will win some parliamentary seats, but internal divisions still remain also in that camp. Thanks very much, Valeria. It strikes me then from your comments that we are seeing an extraordinarily fractured and tense environment as we approach the elections. You mentioned multiple calls for boycott. Indeed, I recall seeing, I think, that for a brief time, Muqtada al-Sada's faction had withdrawn from the electoral process until they were persuaded by cajolery and, and no doubt more to return. And so the elections were back on. But that leads me to turning to you, Anastasia, to the, the obvious question, which is what are the best, worst and most likely scenarios in terms of how this election plays out? Unfortunately, the best case scenario is also the most unlikely at this stage. So it would be one where a number of prominent parties come together to form a coalition government with a really clear mandate for change and with a decisive leader and a scrutinising opposition. As for the worst case scenario, we could really see political representatives of Shia armed factions win a majority of votes, which would essentially signal a hardline twist to the makeup of parliament. For example, the pro-Iran Fatah alliance might, may perform well enough to try its luck with assembling the new government. But this kind of government would have to contend with such a host of issues, including a lack of national and international acceptance and intra-coalition disagreements between ultra-hardline conservative elements and pragmatic ones. Additionally, any scenario triggering significant calls of electoral fraud in this case would represent the worst outcome as extremist groups are really likely to capitalise on political instability in this event. The most likely scenario is that no single party or alliance will be able to win sufficient votes to form a government by itself. And really, this will probably result in lengthy political negotiations with actors really competing for control of important and lucrative government posts. And also this would mean that the grievances surrounding corruption and socioeconomics that sparked the unrest that we saw since really 2019 are unlikely to be resolved in the short term, even with this new government. And a second term for current PM Kadimi, who has a relatively neutral position in Iraqi politics and a good relationship with Iraq's international partners, is also a strong possibility. And in fact, this has been the preferred solution after previous elections and would essentially be a ratification of the status quo. Thank you, Anastasia. That suggests that an unhappy Iraqi electorate is going to have its worst fears confirmed, but let's hope for something better at least. But another question that occurs to me, certainly in the wake of the US and allied withdrawal from Afghanistan, is the US appears to have no real... You know, there's nothing here that suggests the US has ever been involved. Yet, of course, there's a strong reason why they, they ought still to be part of this whole context. But perhaps could you comment on, you know, what more narrowly in the region the impact of these elections is? You know, how, how is Iran viewing it? Are they, you know, worried about certain out, potential outcomes and, and so on? Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly Iran has significant political and security interest in Iraq and has done since 2003 and so holds quite a couple of vested interests in seeing its Iraqi-based affiliate armed groups really consolidate their power in the, these elections. Um, and Iran has essentially proven to be the most capable external actor when it comes to government formation in Iraq. But that being said, there is mounting public dissatisfaction within Iraq surrounding the degree of Iranian involvement. And ultimately, and rather unsurprisingly, 
Iran is hoping for a prime minister who accepts its agenda, or at worst, a weaker compromised prime minister over whom Iran can exert direct or indirect influence on. Meanwhile, a key priority for the US will be making sure that this new Iraqi government's security interests really align with its own. And it's particularly important considering that the US is expecting to be formally ending its combat mission in Iraq by the end of the year, although troops will remain in a strictly advisory capacity. And as you said, this is even more important after um, what we've seen with the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. In terms of regional partners, so somewhat similarly to the US, Israel's primary concern will be curtailing Iranian influence and potentially surrounding fears that the rise of pro-Iranian parties in Iraq will turn it into a hotbed for anti-Israeli military activity. But regardless of the result, Iraq is unlikely to join other Arab Gulf nations in normalizing uh, relations with Israel, which has recently been highlighted by um, very strong opposition liners in Iraqi government at suggestions of normalizing ties with uh, Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, international actors such as Syria, with a strong alignment with Iran, uh, somewhat aligns the two in their preference for pro-Iranian factions to gain ground. Um, Meanwhile, Syria's government would also really welcome more vocally anti-Israel and anti-US stance that can be expected from a government dominated by uh, Iranian-backed militias. Finally, we've also got Turkey and Jordan. Now, in terms of Turkey's interests, this priority will really be that any future Iraqi government is willing to work to prevent groups hostile to Turkey, such as the PKK, from enjoying safe havens in Iraq. And this will include needing to cooperate between central Baghdad and the urban government in the Kurdistan region to really manage the threat presented by the PKK to Turkey's southern border security. However, Turkey's also clashed with Iran with both parties accusing one another of violating Iraq's sovereignty through their operations in Iraqi territory. And it's very unlikely that an intensely pro-Iranian Iraqi government would tolerate Turkey's military incursions within Iraq's borders, quite as much as uh, Kadimi's government has in the past. So that's maybe one thing to bear in mind when considering the possible rise of Iran-affiliated factions in these elections. Thanks very much, Anastasia. It does indeed look as though whatever the outcome, the international picture will remain extremely complicated. But let's get back to the election itself and focus on the, the polls themselves. What do we think are the practical steps that will be taken by authorities across the country in terms of how the election will be carried out and what impact that will have on you know, operations in the country in general? From what we've been hearing and reading up on, election day will happen in a, in a highly securitized environment. Uh, this, these are the expectations and the, the measures that have already been announced sort of point at a very controlled environment. Uh, travel restrictions will be in place across governorates where people will not be allowed to, to travel. Airports will be closed, including uh, Iraqi airspace uh, starting the evening before the election day to reopen then on the morning of October 11th. Most businesses will be shut with only essential ones such as fruit markets, bakeries and pharmacies will allow to be open. This is according to the head of of Iraq's higher election security committee. More than 250,000 security personnel uh, have been assigned to provide security at polling stations to prevent any potential voter intimidations or even terrorist attacks. Iraqi security forces have revealed that they are confident that the level of security is sufficient to prevent groups such as the Islamic State 
seeking to disrupt Sunday's elections. And it's truly been really important for the government to promote the narrative of hosting free and fair elections, which was also part of the demands of the 2019 protests. So they hope with all these measures to encourage as much as possible for voter turnout to try to stave off allegations of rigging, fraud and unfairness. And towards this end, for example, the Sadrus movement have released an app to encourage voter turnout by uh, not only showing the, the points of their political program, but also by showing how voters can reach uh, nearby polling stations. So Iraq's election day will also be watched very closely, uh, as Anastasia was mentioning, by an international community, which is keen to understand the, the new makeup of the Iraqi parliament. There will be about 800 foreign observers present to monitor the elections, with the UN representing one of the largest electoral technical assistances worldwide. And the European Union will also send over electoral observers with a number of experts from various EU member states looking to maintain the rule of law and integrity throughout the election process. Thanks very much, Valeria. Perhaps, Anastasia, finally, could you give us some ideas of what we should watch out for in the aftermath of the elections as potential triggers or flashpoints for uh, the security situation to worsen dramatically? An initial obvious one would be that calls of electoral fraud are really likely to be a flashpoint for uh, unrest by all sides. So past elections have seen uh, machine glitches, deliberate rigging and even destroyed ballot boxes. And already in September, there was a foiled attempt by some political and parliamentary officials to undermine elections using their connections uh, inside the independent high electoral commission. Electronic counting this time may result in uh, less transparency as it will be harder to have oversight and serve the process. And the status quo elites can still exploit the weaknesses of the state they control to defraud the system essentially. Now, another relatively high probability but moderate impact event would be that elites simply return to power after these elections with no effective change. And this would likely trigger anti-government protests, which may escalate and at worst, groups looking to cause havoc and undermine the government further. Now, Iran-aligned groups being cut out, although effectively only possible with a large turnout from supporters in the protest movement um, and remaining very unlikely, would really represent a major trigger for violence and unrest. Um, Meanwhile, a delayed government formation would essentially represent a crucial factor um, exacerbating tensions through keeping final eradication tied up until politics are sorted out and the, the relevant elites extending timelines on agreeing exactly who will be a speaker, president and prime minister, which would drag the government formation process well into 2022, presenting kind of an elevated policy risk for uh, businesses and investors looking at Iraq over the coming months. Thank you very much, Anastasia and Valeria. That's a fascinating and detailed look at these important elections. Let's hope for the best, and at least uh, let's hope we can avoid the worst. I'm sure we'll have you back to discuss how things have gone in the not-too-distant future. And joining me now is Supriya Ravi Shankar, our analyst for the Asia-Pacific region, with a look ahead to the week's events. On Monday the 11th, New South Wales became the first state in Australia to reopen after it achieved the landmark of vaccinating 70% of its adult population. This will likely provide much-needed respite to citizens. In the meantime, in India, farmers have issued an ultimatum for the arrest of BJP Ajay Kumar Mishra's son 
after it was alleged that he was responsible for the killing of four farmers during clashes in Uttar Pradesh. If the ultimatum is not met, we can expect an enhanced number of protests across the country. Thank you very much, Supriya. As always, if you have any questions or would like to follow up on any of the issues we've discussed in this podcast, please do get in touch at our email, info at See you next time.